I hope that the Paris Agreement's enough, but I certainly wouldn't want to bet on it. So I think we also need to be thinking about uh, if it's not enough, uh, what are the other options that we could potentially try to use? Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Environmental Economics Program. With the 27th Conference of the Parties, or COP27, of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, having concluded less than two months ago in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, This is a good time for us to step back and reflect on the history and the evolution of these annual climate negotiations, which began with COP1 in Berlin in March of 1995, which was following on the UN Climate Conference in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. To do this, there's no one I know better positioned to provide such perspective than Daniel Bodansky the region's professor of law at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. Welcome, Dan, to Environmental Insights. It's a pleasure to be here. So in a few minutes, I'm eager to hear your reflections on the history and evolution of the international climate talks, and if we have time, your assessment of what happened at this year's climate talks and associated festivities at COP27. But first, Our listeners will be interested to learn how you came to be where you are. So where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Seattle, Washington. And that means primary and high school there? Yeah, primary and high school. I mean, up until college. Up until college, in which case you moved pretty far east, about as far east as you could go. Is that right? That's right. I went to uh, Harvard for undergraduate And then I actually went even further east to Cambridge University for graduate school in history and philosophy of science. At Harvard, what was your concentration? Uh, Social studies. Social studies, which is a very interesting interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary concentration. So that that involves what political science, sociology, economics, maybe anthropology? A fair amount of uh, sociology, some economics. And then I actually was particularly interested in philosophy and philosophy of the social sciences. So that's what I went on to graduate school on that subject. At Cambridge. And then you finished there in 1981. And you went back across the ocean to what many people would call the leading law school in the United States, if not the world, Yale Law School. Is that right? That's right. I came back in 81 and uh, was there three years, graduated in 84. And, and what did you sort of focus on, if to whatever degree you're allowed to focus in law school? Uh, Yale is actually unusual in that you do have a lot of flexibility. Uh, mm-hmm. I was interested in international issues, uh, so I gravitated towards international law. Uh, so I took uh, basic international law and a few other courses, including human rights law. There actually wasn't a course when I was there on international environmental law, so I was not able to take that subject, uh, but I did take some other international subjects. And then I worked one summer in law school at the State Department in the legal advisor's office. And then your first position out of law school was what? Well, I clerked for a year for a federal judge and then went from there back to the State Department to work as an attorney at the uh, legal advisor's office at the State Department. 
Your clerking was at the U.S. Court of Appeals, is that right? That's right. I was on the Fifth Circuit in uh, Dallas, Texas. And then, as you said, from there, you went next to? Then I went into academia, and I was at uh, University of Washington for my first position. I was there for, uh, well, 12 years altogether, but two of the years I was uh, on leave. Uh, I served as the climate change coordinator at the State Department, so I took a leave of absence during the Clinton administration. So that was 1999 to 2001, approximately? Yeah. So that was in the aftermath of the Kyoto Protocol. They were negotiating mm -hmm. the rules for how Kyoto would work. So I was involved with that process. So, so tell me, th those years that you were working on the climate negotiating team uh, at the Department of State, there must have been, I'm sure there were many stories you could tell, but I'm interested to hear one high point and one low point. <laughs> uh, well, I would say uh, the high point and the low point are closely related. The high point was at the uh, uh, end of the uh, uh, COP6 uh, in The Hague. That was where the negotiations were supposed to wrap up on the uh, Kyoto Protocol rulebook. Uh, we were not actually going to join the Kyoto Protocol. Well, we hadn't joined it at the time, but the hope was that if the rules came out the right way, maybe that would make possible the U.S. joining the Kyoto Protocol. So the negotiations were very tortuous. Uh, but at the last night, uh, I was delegated along with uh, another uh, my colleagues to work out a deal with the European Union, which was our major negotiating, um, well, partner and adversary, really. And uh, we actually did work out a deal. Uh, so that was, I would say, a high point when we thought we actually had a deal for how the Kyoto Protocol rulebook would work. Uh, but then when it went back to the uh, EU ministers, we were negotiating with France, who was the EU president at the time, and Germany uh, and England, um, UK. And when it went back to the uh, EU uh, larger group, uh, it was rejected. So that was the low point when the entire negotiation fell apart and the Hague conference actually ended in failure with no, with no outcome, actually. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that the EU was both a partner and also an adversary, because as I recall, in the lead up to the negotiations on the Kyoto Protocol itself, the U.S., as long as with the set of countries then I think called the umbrella set of countries, which was the U.S., Japan, New Zealand and others, were strongly in favor of having an element in the protocol, which would be emissions trading, which turned out, of course, to be Article 17. And the EU was the major opposition to that. And then, of course, it turned out that the part of the world that put in place a major CO2 emissions trading system subsequently was, in fact, the European Union. Yeah, so they really flipped on that. Um, I would say the way we described the outcome of Kyoto when I was working on the Kyoto Protocol rulebook was um, EU targets U.S. architecture because the Kyoto Protocol mm -hmm. had stronger emission reduction targets than the U.S. wanted. The U.S. went to Kyoto hoping to get a stabilization target, a zero uh, percent reduction target from 1990 mm -hmm. levels, and we came out with a minus seven target. So it was a much stricter, harder target to meet than we, we wanted. But we did get in a lot of the architectural elements that we wanted in Kyoto, uh, primarily um, uh, emissions trading, and then also the ability to use uh, removals from land use and land use change uh, to right. count towards meeting the target. So, so uh, but then the EU actually uh, flipped uh, on trading. Uh, and so uh, they ultimately, as you said, uh, implemented the largest trading system in the world. 
You know, it's interesting you mentioned that the U.S. wanted a less ambitious target than what eventually was negotiated. That target for the U.S., which numerically looks like it's less ambitious than what the EU took on, as I've written about in several places, because of the base year of 1990 and the economic growth and hence increase in energy use and increase in carbon emissions that had taken place during the decade of the 1990s, that was actually a much more ambitious target that the U.S. took on than what the European Union took on, given German reunification and then also what took place with the Thatcher government with British coal. That's right. Uh, a lot of it has to do with how the char target is characterized. So a minus eight target, which was the EU target, sounds like a stronger target than the minus seven target of the U.S. But when you look at it uh, compared to 1990 levels, actually, in terms of sort of the economic burden of trying to meet the target, the U.S. target, we argued, uh, was stronger. Of course, the EU objected to that characterization. So that was one of the many points of contention between the two sides. Yeah, eventually the U.S. sort of worked this out many years later by not using a 1990-year baseline, but using a 2005 baseline, in which case the, it's uh, a much better picture for the U.S. That's right. So, I mean, one of the big differences between uh, Kyoto Protocol and Paris was the Kyoto Protocol took this one-size-fits-all approach. So everybody had a 1990, well, pretty much everyone had a 1990 mm -hmm base year. There were some exceptions for uh, economies in transition, but basically a 1990 base year. Um, but the Paris Agreement allows much more flexibility in, in uh, many things, including definition of the base year. Now, let's just finish up your chronology of employment, as it were. So you were at the State Department involved in the climate negotiations. And then after a couple of years doing that, you went back into academia. Is that right? Yeah, I was just on a leave of absence from the University of Washington. So I was originally um, uh, took a one year leave of absence uh, to mm -hmm. see the negotiations through to uh, the Hague conference. And then I had to make a decision in uh, fall of uh, 2000 whether to uh, extend my leave of absence and stay or not. And it kind of depended for me a lot on the election, uh, whether Gore was going to be elected or not. Uh, I took a roll of the dice and uh, bet that Gore was going to be elected and uh, re-upped for another year. Uh, and so I stayed on uh, what ultimately became through the transition from the Clinton to the Bush administration. So you were betrayed by a Supreme Court decision. <laughs> I had an intense interest uh, in the outcome of that, <laughs> a very personal interest in the outcome. So right. actually, it was quite interesting. Uh, I was actually uh, the senior most uh, person left uh, because I had a, what was called a Schedule B appointment, an expert appointment, rather than a Schedule C or political mm -hmm. appointment. So all of the my colleagues, a lot of my colleagues and all of the people who were my supervisors above me um, uh, including Frank Loy, who was the undersecretary, they had to leave on January 20th. Mm -hmm. But I actually stayed because I was an expert appointment. So I was uh, sort of went through the transition, uh, briefed a lot of the incoming cabinet members um, on climate change. And for a long time, or for a few months at least, it seemed pretty hopeful because uh, uh, Bush had campaigned on a 4P uh, promise, uh, which included carbon as one of the pollutants, 4P is four pollutants. Uh, so we had a hope that this would be like a Nixon going to China moment when Bush would actually support something on climate change. And because he was a Republican, he could maybe bring around the Republican conference uh, to support um, some 
not Kyoto exactly, but perhaps some revision of Kyoto. And there were some early hopeful signs. Uh, Christine Whitman, who is the um, EPA administrator, mm -hmm. uh, some of the other cabinet members uh, seem to be supportive of that approach. So um, we, we hope that that would be the outcome. But then uh, actually there was a uh, attempt by uh, uh, various constituencies in the U.S. that were opposed to Kyoto to try to circumvent that. And they complained to the, um, uh, got Chuck Hagel, who was a senator then from Nebraska, mm -hmm. to write a letter to the White House complaining about Clinton holdovers subverting the Bush administration's mm -hmm. policy. And I was actually one of the named uh, uh, Clinton holdovers. Um, so I was outed in a sense. Uh, and uh, then there was a process to a cabinet level process to come up with the new policy for the Bush administration, which I actually stayed through. But then when they came out with their policy in June, I really didn't want to have to go back and defend the policy internationally. So I resigned a little bit early. I was supposed to stay through through uh, August and go back in the fall, but I um, left early and actually found refuge at the Resources for the Future and spent the summer working there as a fellow writing about the process that I'd gone through in the last couple of years. And indeed, in terms of uh, Bush administration, George W. Bush administration, domestic uh, legislation, the four pollutant bill turned out to be a three pollutant bill. Yeah, that's right. So he basically went back on the campaign promise of four Ps. Uh, and eliminated carbon dioxide. They announced, uh, I think it was in February uh, 2000, that they were not going to uh, join the Kyoto Protocol, that they weren't going to pursue anything uh, new, at least initially. Uh, that uh, I think um, Condoleezza Rice pronounced the Kyoto Protocol dead, which wasn't actually true right. because it didn't depend on U.S. ratification. Right. Uh, so we just pulled out of Kyoto process altogether. And then there was about a five-month period when the administration was trying to come up with its new policy, um, which was a cabinet level process led by uh, Dick Cheney, who was then vice president. Uh, but they came mm -hmm. out with their policy in June, which I thought was a pretty weak policy. There was a follow-on meeting to COP6, what we call a COP6 and a half, to try to sort of salvage a deal on the Kyoto Protocol rulebook. Uh, and that was gonna be held in July uh, 2001. And so I really didn't wanna have to go to the uh, to that resumed COP6, which was held in Bonn, and uh, defend mm -hmm. the administration's policy. So I just resigned and went back into my academic work. And then Christy Todd Whitman left the administration around that same time, right? I don't remember exactly when she did leave, but... Uh, I think it was it, it was a, a response to the same set of developments with regards to climate that caused her to leave, as I recall. In any event, so you go back into academia. Is now is that to is that directly to Arizona State? Or no, I went else? back to University of Washington. I was on a leave of absence uh, from University of Washington, so I went back there. Okay. Was there for a year, and then actually was uh, offered the Woodruff Chair of International Law at Georgia, um, uh, which uh, has a long and distinguished history, going back to Dean Rusk, mm -hmm. who was a Georgian and went to University of Georgia Law School after being Secretary of State. So I went to Georgia for eight years, was there until 2010, and then I went from there to Arizona State University, where I am currently. So now I should anticipate that you're going to be Secretary of State <laughs> in the future administration. Uh, it doesn't look likely at this point. So let's turn um, to your work in the world of legal scholarship. Um, I recognize that this is an unfair question. It's asking you to identify your favorite child, but what is the one bit, the one article of your published research 
that you are most proud of? Well, I think the thing I'm most proud of is the book I wrote on international environmental law called The Art mm-hmm. and Craft of International Environmental Law. Uh, so it was published in 2010, and I actually we uh, now have a co-author for the second edition. We just submitted our manuscript to Oxford University Press for the uh, second edition, which is going to be coming out next year. And is that a case book? No, no. It's a broad overview of international environmental law. So it's uh, supposed to be an introductory work for the broad public, mm-hmm. but it's quite uh, more theoretical in approach. So it doesn't go through doctrinally what international law says about water, what it says about air pollution. It tries to look at it more thematically in terms of what are the causes of environmental problems, policy responses, um, uh, different sources of international law, how international law is implemented, uh, enforced or not enforced, as the case may be. So it tries to take a broad perspective. So it has a lot on actually on economics. Uh, It has a fair amount Mm -hmm. of international relations theory. Uh, and then a fair amount on law, obviously. So even a non-lawyer like myself could understand and benefit from reading it, it sounds like. Yeah, it's intended for actually people exactly like you, Rob. So people who are involved in the international environmental law process, but are not actually international environmental laws, to give them a broad introduction to how to think about international environmental problems. And when would we anticipate that this will be published and available? Well, we just submitted our manuscript uh, last month to OUP, Oxford University press. And so I'm hopeful that it'll come out probably over the summer. Oh, wonderful. That's great. So let's turn to the climate uh, negotiations, which you described in a recent essay, which I found very interesting. You described them as the forever negotiations. Um, Can you tell us briefly what makes the climate talks different from other multilateral environmental negotiations? So most multilateral environmental negotiations start with what I call a constitutional phase where they develop the basic structure of governance, uh, what kinds of institutions are established, uh, what basic objectives there are for the regime. Uh, And then after that, uh, that first constitutional phase, it moves into a more regulatory phase. So there's a treaty dealing with trade and endangered species. So the issues would, after establishing the broad framework, it would become a negotiation on which species to protect, which ones Mm -hmm. are endangered or Uh, which chemicals to control under the Montreal Protocol to deplete the ozone layer. But in the climate negotiations, really, the basic structure of governance has just been continually under debate for the last 30 years. So uh, the UN Framework Convention establishes some basic institutions, but then how it was going to work was first negotiated in Kyoto. Then there was uh, not sufficient support for the Kyoto structure of having uh, illegally binding emission targets. Uh, So then uh, they moved uh, to a much more bottom-up structure, starting in Copenhagen Mm -hmm. and then in the Paris Agreement. So the Paris Agreement, the hope was, would finally had arrived at an architecture for dealing with the climate change issue that would actually sort of stick, and everybody would agree on it, and now we can move on to the questions of sort of implementing that structure. Uh, But I'd say even after Paris, there continue to be a lot of constitutional kind of issues that are still on the table, for example, how to deal with the issue of loss and damage from uh, climate change, um, uh, what the uh, goals should be with respect to adaptation, how climate finance should be addressed. So there's just been an a, a inability to really come up with a structure that everybody is on board with sufficiently that we can move from negotiations more to an implementation phase. And I think that's because the climate change issue is just a much, much bigger issue in terms of its implications for a country's 
economy, for the entire way it's organized domestically, because virtually everything contributes to climate change, virtually everything um, uh, is affected by climate change. So it has just a much, much, much bigger uh, uh, impact on a country's domestic policies. Virtually every policy of a country domestically uh, has something to do with climate change. Uh, and so uh, countries are very jealous of their domestic sovereignty. And so they're much more wary about agreeing to things internationally that might curb their ability to decide on their own economic policies, their own urban policies, their own agricultural policies, their own transportation policies. And I think this is unique to the climate issue. Um, ozone, for example, which has been dealt with much more successfully internationally, just has a much smaller economic footprint mm -hmm. than uh, climate change does. So, so thinking about what you just said, if we go back to the 1992 United Nations Conference on Environment and Development in Rio de Janeiro, there were, of course, two conventions that came out of that. The one that we've been talking about, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, but there was also a biodiversity convention that came out of it. And just this past year, not very long ago, um, there were major negotiations. But what's striking about that is that they got vastly less press attention, vastly less public attention. Um, is that because they're less important? They're less costly? Why do you think it is? Well, I think the biodiversity issue is also extremely important and also has broad implications, but I don't think it's attracted nearly the same kind of attention internationally. Uh, be, again, I think because it does have, doesn't affect as many different parts of a, a country's policies than climate change does. Uh, for example, mm -hmm. uh, urban development policy, transportation policy, um, those are not nearly as directly affected by biodiversity as they are by climate change. So I think uh, climate change, um, whether rightly or wrongly, has gotten uh, just a lot more press attention over the years um, and uh, a lot more political attention uh, over the years. The U.S. actually never joined the Biodiversity Convention, and that right. has not really right. attracted you know, a huge amount of attention in the U.S. Uh, when the Trump administration pulled out of Paris, by contrast, that got a huge amount of attention. And then the uh, Biden administration's decision to go back into the Paris Agreement again got lots of attention. So I think climate change just looms larger. I think it has bigger implications. Uh, the potential effects of climate change uh, on uh, the world are uh, much, much greater than uh, the kinds of issues addressed right now by biodiversity. At least that's my, my view. But I don't really study the Biodiversity Convention as closely, so I'm not nearly as familiar with the ins and outs of that process. But can I ask you one thing about it that you actually just brought up? You said, namely, that the U.S. never ratified the Biodiversity Convention. But the U.S. did ratify, I think the Senate ratified by a voice vote, the uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change during the George H.W. Bush administration. And then uh, that President Bush signed it on behalf of the United States. W why was the Biodiversity convention so much more politically difficult for to be ratified, do you know? So uh, climate change has become such a political issue that I think it's easy to forget that there is actually a fair amount of bipartisan support early on on the issue. Mm -hmm. uh, George H.W. Bush ran for president back in 1988 as the environment president and was going to deal with the 
uh, greenhouse effect with the White House effect, and he was supportive of the negotiations of the Framework Convention. We were one of the very first countries in the world to ratify the uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change, and that was after a voice vote, so essentially unanimous consent by the Senate to uh, join the Paris, uh, the UN Framework Convention. I think now the UN Framework Convention probably wouldn't even be able to be approved by the Senate, much less by a voice vote. Uh, in fact, there was some discussion during the Trump administration of pulling out of the Framework Convention itself. So climate change has become way, way more partisan than it was back in 1992, and that's been very unfortunate, obviously. I'm asking you why the difference with the biodiversity. So the biodiversity didn't get as much attention. Uh, we weren't as focused on it, but I think there was some significant uh, industry opposition to it because of the provisions dealing with intellectual property protections. So biodiversity is oh. used uh, to develop pharmaceuticals. Uh, so there's issues about how biodiversity is used and whether or not uh, who gets the intellectual property rights for developing uh, things, uh, products that uh, use biodiversity as part of the inputs. So, you know, reflecting back, you're in a, in a wonderful position to really reflect back on this long history. Um, many people that are younger than us, they're aware of the last five years or maybe the last six months of what's been going on on the international negotiations on climate change. But you've seen it over the almost the entire period that it's been taking place. Broadly speaking, does this make you optimistic or pessimistic on the progress that's been made and the future and what it holds? Well, I guess I would hope that it makes me realistic. Uh, it, uh, mm -hmm. I think there has been progress that's been made, so I don't think it's uh, appropriate to be entirely cynical about the process that nothing's happened. I think there has been developments. Um, I think the Paris Agreement is a major breakthrough, but I guess it tempers my optimism going forward. I think that there uh, mm -hmm. has been progress, but it's not nearly enough. I guess I'm doubtful that the Paris Agreement uh, will be able to deliver on its uh, expectation or hope of getting limiting climate change mm -hmm. to 1.5 degrees. So I, get, I think it has been progress. So I, I, I wouldn't, I'm not giving up on the process by any means. I think it's the best we have internationally. It's the best we can hope for, but I think it has limits. And so that's why I'm actually quite interested in some of the other kinds of policies that might be able to be used to address climate change, including things like carbon dioxide removal, trying to reflect sunlight uh, from the earth, because I think we may ultimately need them to avert catastrophic climate change. I, I hope that the Paris Agreement's enough, but I certainly wouldn't want to bet on it. So I think we also need to be thinking about uh, if it's not enough, uh, what are the other options that we could potentially try to use? But thinking of those other options, not in technological terms, but in institutional and legal and political terms, the alternatives that some people would talk about to the UNFCCC and the Paris Agreement would be climate clubs, perhaps arising as a result of the European uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism, responses from other countries, et cetera. Do you have a position on climate clubs as an alternative to the UNFCCC process, including the Paris Agreement? Well, I guess I would hope that they could complement the process rather than be a full alternative mm -hmm. to it. I think, um, uh, I think they can uh, play a role. So I think if countries want to go further than the uh, than other countries, then uh, carbon border tax adjustments can be uh, important in trying to protect uh, their position to prevent carbon leakage to countries with weaker standards. But I think ultimately the carbon clubs uh, aren't going to be enough because the biggest emitters 
uh, right now is China. Uh, India's emissions growth is uh, rapidly increasing. I guess I'm uh, question whether climate clubs are really going to be uh, able to uh, change uh, China's policies on climate. Uh, so I think they can allow country uh, countries in the in Europe, uh, potentially the U.S., to go further. Uh, and pledge deeper reductions, but I think we also need a broader global process as well, and that's the Paris Agreement. So once again, the voice of a realist. Um, bring your realistic thinking to one final question, and that is I'd love to know what your reactions are to something we've seen sort of starting in 2019 and again in this past year after a hiatus for COVID, which is the rise of youth movements of climate activism. And, you know, not just Greta Thunberg, but more broadly than that, you probably see it among students at Arizona. I certainly see it among students at Harvard. And we see it at the annual climate negotiations in many cases. It's mainly been in the Europe and the United States. What's your reaction to those youth movements? Well, I think they can play an important role. So ultimately, what happens internationally depends on what's possible domestically within countries. And so we need to be changing the political dynamic within countries like the US, Europe, uh, also hopefully countries like China and India. And so the youth movement, I think, um, uh, can help change that political dynamic within countries. Um, I think they're uh, they highlight the uh, intergenerational aspect of climate change. Uh, they sort of serve as a conscience for the negotiation. So I think they play an important role. Um, uh, I'm not sure they're going to be able to, by themselves, dramatically change the situation, but I think they very can be very helpful in trying to motivate countries to do more. One of the functions of the climate conferences, like the one that wrapped up in Sharm el-Sheikh uh, in November, is to um, uh, sort of focus attention on the issue, put pressure on countries and leaders to do more to deal with the question. And so I think the youth movement mm -hmm. is an important part of that equation of trying to uh, motivate uh, countries to do more and uh, both at the international level and then also within uh, the domestic political scene. So that's, that's a good point on which to bring to a close our conversation. So thank you very much, Dan, for taking time to join me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So my guest today has been Daniel Bodansky, the Regents Professor of Law at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.